Well, we just finished Matthew 13, those parables of the kingdom, the middle of the five discourses that um, Jesus has given and that Matthew has presented in his gospel. But you remember, we kind of said this last week, that surrounding that discourse, there was two episodes, each with each with an involving Jesus' family, at least they're referenced. And so before the parables, you have Jesus' mother and brothers coming to see him. And then after, like we looked at last week, you have him in his hometown in Nazareth. And you have, in both episodes, really the theme of rejection by different people. And so we saw last week the Nazarenes, from what Jesus had been doing through his teaching and through his miracles, through his mighty deeds, his deeds of power, we've seen him uh, rejected. And what's interesting about this is that's going to kind of set up for what we're going to see in the next, the next narrative section. So you've got the discourses in Matthew, but then in between those discourses, uh, surrounding those discourses, you have narrative. You have the story uh, of what is going on in Jesus' ministry. And so the next narrative section we're going through is really from chapter 13, verse 53, which we started on last week, but then all the way through chapter 17. So we've got a long stretch here. And as you read those chapters, um, everything is strategic. We believe that, that uh, God moved the human authors um, as they wrote scripture to put everything in a strategic place, even in the Gospels, even when telling accurate history of what happened, putting things in a strategic place for particular ends. And one of the things that you're going to see in this next section of narrative is, yes, that theme of rejection, which we've already seen. But what's going to happen now is, and has already begun to happen, is it's kind of like Matthew takes his camera and points the camera on different groups. And uh, he's already started with the Nazarenes, with Jesus' hometown, with people who knew him. And he's going to keep doing this. This week, he's going to do it with Herod, who's the king over the, or at least the ruler over the area that Jesus has been ministering in, and John the Baptist. But he's going to kind of keep moving the camera along to different groups and see how are they responding. At this point in Jesus' ministry, when he's done enough miracles, he's done enough teaching for people to know who he is, and the message has been very plain, how are different people responding to Jesus? And ultimately, that will also lead up to, in chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, how did the disciples view Jesus, and how do they confess him at this point? So you're going to see that, and that's one of the main themes, that kind of panning of looking at different groups and how are they responding. What's the situation? What's the state of affairs with these different groups and how they're responding to Jesus? What is Jesus' identity? Matthew 16, 13, um, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And Matthew has already answered that question through a lot of what we see in chapters 14 up to that point, through up to that point. Another theme that's kind of interesting, and maybe one that you wouldn't expect, is the theme of John the Baptist. But if we've been tracking with the story in Matthew so far, that shouldn't be too surprising because John the Baptist has been a pivotal character in the story. Let's just review that a little bit because it's going to help set the stage for what we see this morning in this section with Herod. So let's think back to how John the Baptist has acted in Matthew. He starts in chapter 3. John the Baptist comes onto the scene as 
the herald of the Messiah, as the forerunner of this Messiah, as the one who's preparing the way of the Lord, the one who is going to be God and man, the king of Israel. And John's message was, repent, for the kingdom of the heavens has drawn near. And that repentance, part of that repentance, was expressed through baptism, saying that, Lord, we need you to cleanse Israel, to cleanse us individually, and to cleanse Israel so that we can be a people prepared for the kingdom. And then what happens? At the begin, uh, uh, Jesus steps onto the scene, yes, but then we see John get arrested in chapter 4. And what happens as soon as John gets arrested is Jesus takes the same core message that John had for his ministry, except that he adds to it deeds, deeds of power, miracles that John didn't do. John never did any miracles that are recorded. That wasn't part of his ministry, but Jesus Jesus announces the same basic message, repent for the kingdom of the heavens has drawn near, and then he adds to it uh, these deeds of power that testify to who he is and give foretastes of the coming kingdom. So the kingdom is coming, judgment is coming. If you repent, uh, uh, you're going to be people prepared for the coming of God's kingdom. And let me give you teasers and trailers of coming attractions with these miracles of that kingdom power. And then we see in chapter 11 that John is in prison and he hears about the deeds, the powerful deeds of the Christ, but it doesn't match with his expectations. See, John had expected the actualization of judgment and the establishment of God's kingdom right away. And one of those things, we said this at the time in the beginning of chapter 11, is you look back at Isaiah, even the portion that Jesus quotes back to John, and it talks about uh, prisoners being released from prison. And John's like, hey, wait a minute, isn't that supposed to happen? What about me? Uh, so it, uh, Jesus and what he's doing in his ministry doesn't match with John's conceptions, but uh, Jesus reinforces and reassures John, no, I am the Messiah, I am the one to come. Keep trusting, essentially. And then immediately after that, Jesus points up in chapter 11, John's significance as a prophet Yes, he's a prophet, and he's even more than a prophet. He's the greatest person that's come to be as far as a prophet and a prophetic ministry. And if you receive, if you receive the message of repentance, if you respond to the message of repentance and act upon it, then he is that figure in Malachi who is supposed to come before the day of the Lord, before God's judgment and before God's kingdom comes. If you receive. So the door is still open in chapter 11. If you guys receive the message, if you repent, Israel, then John is going to be that one. But then through the rest of chapter 11 and chapter 12, as we've seen, it doesn't happen that way. The people don't repent. The crowds don't repent. Israel doesn't repent. So Jesus rejects Israel, that generation of Israel, I should say. Not all Israel, just that generation for their unbelief. And in chapter 13, remember a big thing in chapter 13 is, okay, what's the coming of the kingdom going to look like now? Now that that's happened, now that the door is closed on that generation of Israel, what's the coming of the kingdom going to look like? So you have to see that John and Jesus' ministry are integrally tied to the timing of when God's kingdom is going to come. And that actually, that, those, that, that intertwining 
comes right into our section that we look at this morning, where we pan the camera onto Herod, yes, but back onto John as well. And so you need to understand that backdrop and how John's, ro- John's role in Matthew and in relation to the kingdom before we enter this morning section. And where the Nazarenes, remember the Nazarenes, uh, the, they, they knew Jesus and they essentially rejected Jesus. Why? Because he was familiar That's what we said last week, and that familiarity essentially excluded them from identifying who Jesus really was and rejecting him. Well, now we see something similar with Herod. As we pan the camera onto Herod, we see that he's got his own motivations, and it also makes him miss Jesus. He's going to answer the same question the Nazarenes are going to ask, but in a different way, but it still has him miss Jesus, which leads us to our big idea this morning that we're looking at, and it's this. Beware that self-preservation will make you brutalize God's kingdom. Beware that self-preservation will make you brutalize God's kingdom. In this section, Matthew, for his audience, his Jewish Christian audience, he's explaining how people responded to Jesus and why people rejected him. But like we said last week with the Nazarenes, it's not only an explanation but a warning of those same motivations. Because those same motivations, even though we can see them in the Nazarenes, we can see them in Herod, they can also be at work in people to also reject the kingdom and that message. And let's see, let's see how this plays out. And first, we're in the first couple of verses, we see this. This motivation of self-preservation will misidentify Jesus, will misidentify Jesus. Look at verse 1. At that time. Now, when you see something like that, there's all these like links and clues that the biblical authors give us of how did what happened just before this link with what happened now. And this is one of them. Matthew is saying at that time. Well, what time? The same basic time frame. It's a little loose, but the same basic time frame as what just happened in Nazareth. So we've already seen Nazareth and their response to Jesus, their rejection. And Matthew is intentionally tying the two episodes together. And he's saying, at about that same time that we saw in Nazareth, this next thing happened. And he's tying those episodes together. So what do we see? At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame or the report of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Let's note a couple things. First, we've seen the name Herod before in Matthew. We saw it early on in the book of Matthew, but this is a different Herod. The Herod we saw earlier on in the book of Matthew uh, was Herod the Great. And Rome had given him a kingship really over all Israel. But when Herod died, he, uh, his, his kingdom, Palestine, was split up between his sons. And one of those sons was the Herod that we see. So Herod kind of became a dynastic title, kind of like a Caesar. You know, you think of Julius Caesar, that was the initial Caesar, and he took control of the empire of Rome. But then subsequent to that, the leaders were called, the emperors were called Caesars, right? It became a dynastic title. Well, similarly with his sons. So Herod the Great was this king, but then his sons bore the name Herod. And they had uh, rulership over portions over what Herod had ruled over. So Herod the Tetrarch, that, that phrase Tetrarch, uh, literally it's the idea of a ruler of a fourth, and it didn't work out so much that he had exactly a fourth of the, 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 the territory, but he's a ruler nonetheless. He's a ruler under Rome's jurisdiction. 
And the, period, the, the portion of Palestine that Herod was, the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, that's his other name, Herod Antipas, was ruling over was Galilee in the north, and then another section to the east of the Jordan and the Dead Sea called Perea. So he's got two territories, and these are the areas where John the Baptist and Jesus were, or at least as the Gospel of Matthew presents it, are primarily active, especially in the last year or so of Jesus' ministry, or last couple years. So John is active probably in Perea, and Jesus mostly in Galilee. So that's who we're talking about. Now, you need to know a little bit more about Herod the, Ten- uh, the Tetrarch. Herod Antipas is this guy's name. Antipas never had the title of king. His father had the title king, but he did not. And uh, now he thinks of himself as king, and he rules for a great long while. He actually rules from 4 BC up to AD 39. What happened in AD 39 is prompted by Herodias, the same gal that we see later in this section, who uh, seems like uh, uh, she has a lot to say in Herod's rule. Um, she prompts him to ask for the title of king from Rome. Now, Herod already thinks of himself that way. Herod Antipas does. So he goes to Rome in AD 39, and he asks Rome for the title of king. And for his troubles, he is banished to modern-day France. So that is interesting history, no doubt, but actually I tell you that to fill out some of the character of Herod, but also some of the realities that Matthew's Jewish audience would have been familiar with, and that informs the text that we're looking at this morning. So that's who we're talking about. We're talking about Herod Antipas, this fellow who thinks himself to be king, but he doesn't bear that title from Rome. Now, what does he hear? He hears about the fame of Jesus, the report about Jesus. What does he hear? He probably hears about Jesus' teaching. He certainly hears about Jesus' miracles, because that's what he references. He hears these things, and then notice what he says. This, and it's really emphatic in the original, this one is John the Baptist. He's telling his servants, so he's sitting in court. He's he's got his servants around him. This person I'm hearing about, this is, this one is John the Baptist. He, and again, it's pretty emphatic in the original, he has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now notice here, um, this language of miraculous powers, it's actually the same word that was used in the previous section when the Nazarenes were talking about the deeds of power, the miracles that Jesus did. It's the same word. And really, if you think about it, Herod is answering the same question that the Nazarenes asked. If you bounce back up into the last section, um, uh, 1353 uh, through 58, what question did the Nazarenes ask? They asked, from where? From where, from what source does this one, Jesus, where did he get this stuff? Where did he get this teaching? Where did he get these powers? And Herod has his own answer to that question. His answer is, is John the Baptist raised from the dead? Which is a very strange answer if you think about it. Uh, It's kind of an odd answer. But nonetheless, let's just think about kind of at least the There's a couple things we find out that the reader finds out. One, we find out John the Baptist died. Because the last we saw of John was in chapter 11. John was still, he was in prison, but he was still alive. So the readers just, uh, Matthew just tells the readers, 
uh, John the Baptist died, and actually Herod's thinking he's been raised from the dead. So we find that out. We're going to find out more here in a minute. Um, Here's the other thing. If you think about that on kind of a surfacey sort of level, it kind of makes sense, right? If someone dies, uh, they have gone, we would say it this way today, or at least in the culture, they've gone to the beyond, right? They've, They've touched the beyond. They've touched these uh, uh, the, the, what's on the other side of death, and if they've come back, well, it would kind of logically make sense that they would have some special power, some special abilities. Now, why would, uh, why would um, Herod confuse Jesus and John the Baptist? Well, again, what do, what's the core of both of their message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. They're both proclaiming the same core message. They're both gathering crowds. They're both calling for repentance. So that kind of makes sense, sort of. But this is kind of a superstitious and fearful response. Really, that's the the idea, especially as we read through the rest of this section. You're going to find that Herod is characterized by fear. Or, to use the language I put in our outline, self-preservation. He will do whatever it takes to preserve his own rule. We will find, as we read through the rest of this section, that he was afraid of John and the threat John was to his rule and to his perceived kingship. So as he's answering this question about Jesus, and the way he answers it, he's, you know, you you hear about, you know, he was already afraid of John while he was still living. We're going to read that. And then he puts him to death, and we've already read that. But then you hear that, wait, this, someone proclaiming the same message is, is, is out there and about, you can kind of get the picture that Herod's freaked out a little bit. But why? Why is he freaked out? Because he's afraid of the same way that John the Baptist was a threat to him before, he's afraid he's still going to be a threat to what? To his rule. He's concerned about self-preservation. But this language of self-preservation, what we mean by it is not just survival. We mean the promotion, the, uh, the, the, the protection of self-rule and self-reign, which is exactly what is going on with Herod. He comes up with a superstitious, kind of freaked out response because he's afraid of losing his power. He's afraid of losing his reign. But notice what the effect is. The question in the report is about Jesus. And because of his motivation and because of his fear and his fear of losing his self-reign, of preserving his reign, preserving his rule, he totally misses Jesus and says, this, this is John the Baptist, right? His focus is not on the truth. His focus is on protection. And what that does is it means he totally bypasses Jesus altogether. Do you see that in the text? That he is, it's a, the report is about Jesus. You want to see something really cool, you look at Jesus and who is he and his identity. And what is he proclaiming? He's the true king. He's the majestic one. He's the one that you should draw your attention to. But because of Herod's fear, because of his self-preservation, he totally blows past Jesus and fixates on John the Baptist. He misses him. And that's part of Matthew's Point. As he pans the camera to different groups and how they respond to Jesus, he's also showing what they're motivated by. What's Herod motivated by? Self-preservation. 
and not just survival, but the preservation of his rule, the preservation of his reign. And friends, the, the fact of the matter is, is that that's every single human being from the fall onward, isn't it? Because what we've been saying all along, if you think back to the fall in Genesis 3, you've got Adam and Eve who are designed to live under God's reign, to listen to him, to obey him, to be satisfied in God. And then they say, no, we want to be our own kings. We want to have our own rule. We want to preserve ourselves according to our terms. And so human beings from that time on have been in that state of rebellion, that state of self-preservation, that design of of promoting self and the preservation of self-rule just like Herod. Now, granted, Herod has more territory, has more political rule. Uh, Not everyone has that level of actual rule in the world, and yet we want to. We naturally have that same inclination. And if you do, and you play to that, if self-preservation, the promotion of self, the promotion of self-rule, just like Herod, if you that's your fixation, if that's the center point of your universe, it will lead you to distort Jesus' identity. Or to put it another way, just like Herod does here, you will accommodate Jesus to yourself and to your fears rather than seeing him as he actually is as king and savior. See, the temptation is when you, and we've talked about this, when you hear about Jesus to to form your own conception. And really what we do is we take what we see about Jesus, even as we read about Jesus in the Bible, and we want to morph him and mold him and conform him to our own motivations and our own fears. What you fear the most is what you're motivated by, isn't it? Well, here, Herod's afraid of losing his self-rule and his reign. That's what's motivating him, and we can all do that. It might not look as devious or as deadly as Herod's, but you will begin to morph Jesus to conform to your fears, and you'll totally miss his true identity. And that's what you need the most. That's what you and I need the most in the scriptures. The scriptures ultimately all point to Jesus Christ because he is the treasure of the world, the treasure of the universe. It's what everything is about. It's what history is about. He is that one. He is the true king. He is the true savior. And you want to see him. You want to see his glory. You want to see his beauty. You want to see his excellencies, even as they've been portrayed in the gospels. And you do not want the distorting influence of your own self-preservation to make Jesus into something he's not. And what's the answer to that, as we will see? I mean, it's the same thing, the same answer that we've been saying all along. Repent. Lay down arms. You don't try to preserve self. You don't try to preserve self-rule. You lay down arms. You surrender. And you say, God, I want to see you as who you are, not who as I would make you to be. I want to see Jesus for who he is, not whom I would make him to be. And I want to follow him as king and savior. We all have to guard against that. Because if we give ourselves to that self-preservation, that self-rule, it will distort and have us misidentify who Jesus actually is. But we see more in verses 3 through 12, and we see this. Self-preservation will brutalize 
God's kingdom. Self-preservation will brutalize God's kingdom. Look at verse 3. Now, if the reader just came across verses 1 and 2, and all of a sudden they just find out, kind of out of the blue, oh, John's dead, and now Herod's talking about him being raised from the dead, that's kind of weird. We need some backstory here. Well, Matthew accommodates us, and he gives us the backstory. You see that little four at the beginning of verse three, that's telling us, let me give you, essentially it's telling us, let's give you some explanation. Let's explain Herod's response here. Let's explain Herod's response. Verse three, for Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Now, we knew already as readers of Matthew in uh, chapter 4, verse 12, that John had been arrested. But it's a pretty plain Jane uh, explanation. It just says John was arrested. It doesn't say why. doesn't even say by whom. doesn't give any of the motivations. It just says that John was arrested. But now we're coming back to, to John's arrest, and we're seeing, oh, okay, we're getting some of what happened and some of the motivation behind it. For Herod had seized John and bound him, put him in prison. The idea is he put him away in prison. He's probably imprisoned in a place called, and I'm going to butcher this name too, Makarus. But uh, all you need to know is that that's a fortress city with a dungeon uh, on the east side of the Dead Sea, um, kind of a third of the way down the Dead Sea. So it's a ways away. It's a ways away from Galilee and evidently John's been in prison there. We know that from a contemporary of these times and events, a guy named Josephus. So John's in prison down there, and he's been in prison for some time. We estimate maybe a year or so he was imprisoned in this place, probably. And he put him away there, but why? Why did he do it? On account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Now let's give you a little bit more background. Herodias uh, and Philip, uh, Philip, the Philip here is not, uh, sometimes you read the scriptures and it'll mention Philip the Tetrarch, who was a half-brother of Herod. Now, this gets really confusing, so bear with me. Uh, This is not Philip the Tetrarch. In other words, this Philip is not a ruler over anything in Palestine, but this Philip is a half-brother to Herod, that's not, uh, you, you, you hear about Philip the Tetrarch, but it's not this Philip. It's a different guy, okay? All you need to know is that this guy was a half-brother to Herod. So the story goes, again, we learn this from Josephus, this extra-biblical literature that helps us fill in some of these gaps. We find out that Herod Antipas, the guy that's being referenced here, Herod, he goes and he visits his half-brother Philip. And while he's there, he falls in love with his brother's wife, Herodias. And they both agree to get married on the condition that when Herod Antipas goes back to Palestine, he divorces his current wife, whom he's been married to for 15 years. And his current wife is the daughter of the king of Arabia, Nabataean Arabia, next door to Herod's domains. And Herod agrees to do it. So Herod goes back and he divorces his first wife of 15 years, who's the daughter of the king of uh, Nabataean Arabia, King Aretas. And you're like, well, why does that matter? Well, let's imagine, so you're a ruler and you, you just divorce someone's wife that was for a political alliance, and then you divorce that gal. How's that dad gonna feel? He's gonna be ticked. 
which is exactly what happened. So the king Aretas is ticked, and it causes political tension for Herod and his domains, and ultimately ends in war. Now, why do we care about that? Because it, it shows, and I'm giving you some of the backstory here, it shows some of Herod's character. All of Matthew's audience would have been aware of the backstory, so we're just filling in some of those gaps. It shows some of Herod's character. Herod, for the purpose of sexual immorality, is willing to do something very stupid and foolish politically as a king and as a ruler to have this woman. And that displays some of his character, his lust and his sexual immorality, which, again, it's just that's part of the picture that Matthew's painting for us. So, Herod puts John away in prison because of this situation, verse 4, because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Now, what's the basis for that? The basis for that is Leviticus 18.16. You don't have to turn there, but Leviticus 18.16 and Leviticus 20.21, which says that you can't marry your brother's wife uh, while your brother is still living, that's considered incest, and that's considered sexual immorality, as according, as according to Leviticus. So that's the basis that John has in telling Herod it's not lawful for you to have here. Now let's imagine, what's, what's John doing? Is he talking to Herod directly? Maybe, but we can also see he's probably talking to his audience, to the crowds, and he's saying, You've heard about Herod and what he's done. That's not lawful. That's not good. That's not right. And what we see John doing here is performing the role of a prophet, the role of a prophet. You can see this in the Old Testament. When the government is corrupt, when the king is corrupt, when he's doing evil things, according to God's law, the standard is always God's law, then uh, the prophet calls him out on it, which is exactly what happens here, which illustrates one of those truths that God's people— do have a role and a responsibility to call government to what is right and to declare what is wrong because it's always God's standard. God always judges governments and peoples by his standards. So that's just an aside, but you do see that here in the text. It's not lawful for you to have her. So that's why uh, you, you can imagine if John is preaching this, he's telling other people it's not lawful for Herod to do this, well, now all of a sudden it becomes a political issue. Not only is it annoying, like, okay, this guy's calling me out on my sin, but it could also, uh, especially with the relationship with King Aretas, it could cause this whole political downfall. Again, what is Herod motivated by? He's motivated by protecting his own rule and reign. So what does he do? He gets John out of the way. He gets John out of the way. He puts him away in prison. Verse 5 and though he wanted to put him to death, so Herod wants to kill John. Let's just get him out of the way. Let's, 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 let's kill him. But although he wanted to put him to death, notice this, he feared the people. He feared the people. Why? Because they held him, that's John, to be a prophet. So again, what do you see in Herod's motivation? I want to get John the Baptist out of the way, but if I kill him, well, I could have an uprising on my hands because they think, the people think that John is a prophet, so I could have an uprising on my hand. That could threaten my position, so I'm not going to kill him. You see, he's, again, driven by self-preservation, the preservation of his rule. He's driven by fear. 
So that's the situation. That explains John's arrest. That gives the background of John's arrest and why he's just staying arrested in the, uh, the fortress, the dungeon, for quite some time. What's the development? Well, verse 6, but when Herod's birthday came, and the idea is Herod's birthday celebration, what happens? There's a development that happens here. What happens? The daughter of Herodias. Now, let's pause there. Remember, Philip and Herodias were married for some time. They had a child and actually potentially multiple children together. But the one that's probably being referenced here is a gal named Salome. This girl is probably about 12 to 14 years old in this scene. Okay, so this is what's, what's happening here. So there's a birthday celebration at... Um, uh, and birthday celebrations for a king and a ruler at that time, especially the Herods, were known to be uh, a lot of drinking, a lot of eating, uh, a lot of debauchery happening too. Um, the text is not explicit about that, but just have that picture in mind as we read through this. So when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias, so this is the daughter of Herodias and Philip, danced before the company and pleased Herod. Again, the text is not explicit, but let's just imagine you have a 12 or 13-year-old girl, and the idea is she's dancing in front of the midst of these guests who are drinking, probably drunk to an extent. It's nothing good. And it shows more of Herod's character. What is he like? We've already seen he's sexually immoral. That, this might be another indication of that part of his character, but nonetheless, whatever happened pleased Herod to what end? So that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Now, here Herod is, we see Herod driven by fear. We see him driven by lust. And it puts him in this position where he promises to give what's actually not his. Remember, he's a subject to Rome. He can't actually give all that much as a subject to Rome. He doesn't have the authority uh, other, uh, other uh, like Mark and Luke indicate that he promised up to half his kingdom, which he didn't have the right to do. So what is he thinking? He's thinking of himself as the grand king who can give such promises to the ones who please him. But anyway, he makes a promise with an oath. And then what happens? Verse 8, prompted by her mother, prompted by Herodias, she said, and what's interesting about how this is framed in the text, it's, it's given in such a way to highlight the surprise of her request. Literally, it's, give to me, she was saying, here, upon a platter, the head of John the Baptist. It's really kind of framed in such a way in an original that it's highlighting the surprise of her request. But where did this come from? It came from Herodias, who had her own grudge against John. And what's interesting is you see Herodias, unlike, unlike Herod, who's kind of being a little bit passive, he's not going to deal with John, he's afraid of the people, Herodias takes action and outmaneuvers her husband and pushes him into a situation he can't get out of because of what he's motivated by. Because what happens in verse 9? And the king was sorry. Literally, the king was grieved why was he grieved? It's not because of John, because we know that Herod wants to kill John. He already said so earlier on in the text. 
Herod's not sad because he's going to kill John. He already wanted to kill John. Why is he sad? On account of his oaths and his table guests, his dinner guests. That's why he's sad. Why is he sad? Because now he's in an impossible situation, a catch-22. Because if he upholds his oath, which he made publicly before all of his dinner guests, then he's going to kill John. But what is he afraid of? He imprisoned John in the, uh, he, he's afraid, he was afraid of killing John in the first place because of an uprising of the people. So if he keeps an oath, well, that would violate my self-preservation because the preservation of my rule because of the people. On the flip side, if he denies his oath, which was public in front of all of his dinner guests, well, they're going to, I can't save face. They're going to mock me. They're, my word is not worth anything. Again, on both sides, he's driven by self-preservation. His own motivations are fighting against each other, and it puts him in an impossible situation. Do you see that? And what's interesting is, what did they call Herod in this verse, in verse 9? Every time previous to this, he's been called Herod. Yes, he was called the Tetrarch, which is not a king, but he's like this ruler under Rome. But notice what he's called in verse 9. This is actually significant. He's called the king. He's called the king. Now, Rome didn't think of him as a king. Herod and Herodias certainly thought of him as a king. But notice Matthew calls him king at the very moment when he has the least power. When he is driven and intertwined in his self-preservation so much that, and he's been outmaneuvered by his wife Herodias. So what is Matthew doing? He's using the term ironically. It's like, let's see what the king does. The false king, the pretender king. What's he doing, right? He's trapped. He's trapped by his own self-rule, his self-motivations. And what does it lead him to do to brutalize God's kingdom and its true messengers? Verse 10, he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. So all the responsibility is laid at Herod Antipas' feet. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and, was brought, and she brought it to her mother, the one who had outmaneuvered Herod, who'd orchestrated all this, who had taken action where Herod can't, hadn't. And then we see this, the disciples, that's the disciples of John, his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now, there's multiple things going on here in this text. It's actually fairly complicated in all that it's seeking to communicate. But one of the things that we do see and that's highlighted is Herod's character, and he thinks of himself as king. He's seeking to preserve his own rule. And it leads him to do what? To brutalize God's kingdom, to stand opposed to God's actual kingdom messengers, John the Baptist. And what is happening here is that Matthew is giving a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to Jesus. If John was the forerunner of the Messiah and his forerunner just got executed by the kingdoms of the world, well, what's going to happen to the Messiah himself? There's a foreshadowing here, but it's also in the midst of highlighting this is why Herod 
misidentified Jesus, and it's why he did what he did. What were his motivations? His own lusts, his own desires, and his desire for self-preservation and self-rule. You see, self-preservation and self-rule, the, the preservation of self, will inevitably lead you to standing opposed to God's kingdom. Now, you might not behead anyone. I pray that you don't. But, but the heart, the heart is the same. If your kingdom and your rule and your self-determination, your, your own little private kingdom of self is at the center of your universe, then you're in the same boat as Herod, and you will stand in opposition to God's kingdom. And in fact, what you see here is your, um, Herod's desires were twisted around into knots to opposing what is right, and the same thing will happen to you if self is at the center of your universe. Instead of self-preservation, what's the answer? What was the answer for Herod? He needed the fear of God and repentance. Notice even in verses 1 and 2, he says that John's been raised from the dead. Well, what does that imply? It implies that God was involved in raising John from the dead. So Herod even acknowledges that maybe, John, maybe God's involved in this in bringing John up from the dead. Herod doesn't deny that, but what is he afraid of? He's afraid of people, and he's afraid of losing his rule and his power more than he's afraid of God. He's more afraid of breaking his oaths to people than he is about breaking God's law, which is what John had called him on. And that's exactly what the kingdom of self does. Twists you into knots, has you opposing God and opposing his rule, opposing his word. And what is the call? What should Herod have done? Humbled himself and listened to the message of Jesus and John. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is drawn near. It would have taken Herod to acknowledge, yeah, God is king, He's given me a stewardship authority in reigning over his people. It's not about me. I have done wickedly. I submit. I lay down arms, and I am a sinner. I need, I need his grace. I need to repent, and I need to trust in this Jesus. I need to find out who this Jesus is and follow him and become a disciple. I mean, that's what it would have taken. But it's the same for us. Right? It's the same call again and again. We cannot have self and self-preservation and self-rule at the center of our universe. We need to have Jesus Christ, to see him as the ultimate king, the true king, not the false kings that we make ourselves out to be, to humbly repent and to trust, to lay down arms, to stop following self, and to follow Jesus and depend on him for rescue. Another aspect of this, think about John's perspective. I think Jim even kind of referenced it in his prayer. Think about the perspective of John in all of this. So here's John, and he has faithfully done what God called him to do, right? He was a faithful prophet. He was a faithful messenger and forerunner of the Messiah. And we can kind of see a glimpse of what he's thinking in prison in chapter 11. Like, hey, wait a minute. This isn't what I thought it was going to look like, and yet he stays faithful until the end, and what does it lead to? A petty ruler beheading him. And it looks really bad, doesn't it? 
it looks like, I mean, that's the herald of the king, and he just got executed by a petty king. It's like, what's going on? What's going on with the kingdom? I mean, that's what the disciples, that's what Matthew's audience would have thought. Well, what is, what's going on? It's that rejection aspect that we've been seeing. The door has closed, and so now John could have been that Messiah figure if Israel would have repented, but they didn't. The door is closed, and so now we see exactly what he was ta- Jesus was talking about in the parables. The kingdom has been uncovered. The treasure's been uncovered. The people have been uncovered, and now they're getting covered up again. Now there's a postponement. It looks really bad. The kingdom expectations look to be devastated. This is not going the direction it seems like it should be. But what we have to remember in all of this is the kingdom expectations are not devastated. They're merely postponed. You could put it this way. Who was on the right side of history, Herod or John? Boy, in this this situation, it sure looks like Herod came out on top. But it was John the one who got beheaded for the sake of the kingdom, the true kingdom and the true king who was on the right side of history. Because what happened to Herod in AD 39? He goes to Rome, he requests the title of king from a human emperor, and he's banished. And he's done. His kingdom's over. He thought he had all this power, he thought he was the king, and then it's over. But not Jesus, and not Jesus as king and his kingdom that is coming. And John will be in that kingdom and enjoy what he was looking for ultimately in the end. And that's the paradox of Christianity, is that self-preservation leads to destruction. Jesus says it later in Matthew 16. He's going to make it explicit. Whoever saves his life will lose it. Self-preservation leads to destruction, but death to self leads to ultimate life. Are you on the right side of history? Herod wasn't. He was a false king, and he was gone. He had a little bit of power for a little bit of time, and he was gone. But Jesus will have power, and his kingdom will have power, so that even if things look mundane, look hard, looks like things are falling apart here and now, they won't ultimately in the end because of the true king, Jesus. Beware that self-preservation will make you brutalize God's kingdom. Beware of the kingdom of self. Have Jesus at the center of your kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, it's sobering to see what it costs to be aligned with the right side of history when everything else in the world says opposite. But death to self is the true route to life. Laying down arms and having you rule our lives is the path to freedom. And Lord, we just pray that you would give us eyes to see that Because, Lord, we need it not only for an initial salvation, an initial repentance of laying down arms and trusting ourselves to the King, to Jesus, but we need to follow Jesus and we need to keep renouncing self and keep following you and seeing your kingdom is glorious and worth it. Help us to do so as your disciples. Guard us from the kingdom of self, from 
self-preservation and self-rule. Rather, we are under your rule and submitted to you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the great king and also the humble king who came as a man to die for your people so that their sins are paid for and your righteousness is credited to them. Lord, help us to swear allegiance and keep swearing allegiance to you. We love you. Help us to walk in the way that you would have us in this world. Help us to be faithful, even as John was faithful to the end. We ask these things and pray them in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.